Welcome to episode 71. Today, the prolific Dr. Andrea Hongensvold will talk about her co-authored book entitled Collaborating for English Learners. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. When I was an elementary school student, the school practice was to pull students out. Me and four other students were pulled out of their classes to have intensive English lessons. I received ESL services for four years. I don't remember my lovely ESL teacher ever co-teaching a class with my homeroom teachers. So when I became an ELA teacher at an international school in Laos, I too advocated for students to be pulled out of their science and social studies classes. I argued that why are we making them learn about ecosystems when they can't even read the word ecosystem in the first place? But luckily, this school in Laos already had a policy of not pulling kids out and instead having teachers collaborate together. Since then, I have grown and embraced and advocated for teacher collaboration. That is largely because of two researchers, Dr. Andrea Hugginsfeld and Dr. Maria G. Dove. Today, I interview Andrea about teacher collaboration. She will share her collaboration journey when she first started teaching in the US. I love this part the most because I've never heard it before, even though I read all of her books. Her personal journey to teacher collaboration is going to inspire you. Andrew will also talk about the key principles of teacher collaboration, how we can structure our time together, how we can effectively co-teach together, how to find equity in our practice, the role of administrators, and something called the collaborative instructional cycle. If you are new to co-teaching, this is a phenomenal episode to start with. If co-teaching is already part of your practice, this podcast will reinforce what you're already doing. If you are an administrator and new to co-teaching or are interested in it, this would also be a wonderful podcast for you. Now, on to today's podcast. With us today is the one and only legendary Dr. Uh, Andrea Hongensfeld, and she is here to talk to us about all things teacher collaboration. You, you know, this is it's like having a superstar, one of the brightest stars in our field, come and talk to you. So it's like when we talk about teacher collaboration and the need to work with language learners, on me, to collaborate on behalf of language learners, we always think about two people. It's Andrea and her co-author uh, Maria Dove. And so it's such a pleasure to have you. You are a huge presence, not just through the books and your conferences and your presentations and your doctoral work with and your research, but also your, your gentle presence 
on on Twitter. We were just talking before we started recording about Brene Brown and how uh, she brings a wholeheartedness to the work. She says, we have to bring our whole heart to our work. And that's what you do. You bring your whole heart to this work so that uh, we can do the work we need to do with language learners and our colleagues. So thank you, Andrea, for giving us of your, of your time, of your wisdom, your research, and your passion. So we are indebted to you. Without you, we would still be pulling kids into little rooms and little closets and keeping them there the whole day. Wow, Tan, that is some introduction. I'm so grateful for connecting with you, for having connected with you for quite some time now and being able to support you and the entire community that you have created through collaboration online and beyond. So many thanks for the beautiful words. And I'm really excited about our conversation to give people a context. Can you tell us about your work? Sure. So I started out as an EFL, English as a foreign language teacher. That's what we called it way back then. And when I came to the United States, I became an ESL teacher. Originally, my training is at the secondary level, but my first job assignment in the United States brought me to the kindergarten through third grade level. And co-teaching found me within the New York City system first as an option to pull out when it was really not meaningful anymore to pull out 14, 15, 16 kids out of 28. So I had a visionary principal. I do have to give her a shout out. Her name is Carol Wertheimer. And she asked the ESL department, four of us, who wants to come out of the basement? And as you said, exactly, services were in closets and in uh, former, even restrooms converted to <laughs> classrooms and any space that you could find. And the basement auditorium dressing rooms were our designated ESL oh, rooms. And that just did not serve our students that's well. Crazy. So that's where, yes, yeah, that's where my co-teaching journey began. Many, many years fast forward. I met Maria Dove in 2004. So that's now over a decade and a half. Wow. Years just go by so fast. And we started co-presenting, uh, co-authoring articles first in 2006, 2007, 2008. And then we realized that we need to start writing a book. And our very first book was published in 2010. We just referred to it as the Brown Book. So the collaboration and co-teaching book sort of put our work on the map. We're very indebted to Corwin Press for taking a chance on us. We were first time authors with them. And um, the book became pretty successful pretty fast. And that's how our names started getting around the field of ESL, ESOL, ELD. We started shifting our thinking um, around 2010 with the Common Core Standards coming out, that all students really need to be included in grade appropriate rigorous instruction. So it seems to be, to me, that the stars were aligned for this work. And even though you very kindly attributed our work to shifting out of the pullout system into the collaborative model, I think we might have been the catalyst for that change, but the change was already brewing, definitely. There yes. was a need for this shift. Yes. 
So today I'm an associate director, I'm sorry, an associate dean and EDD program director at Molloy College. Wanted to give my institution a big shout out as well because I've been there for 20 years and we co-teach in the doctoral program. Wow. So it is just a wonderful opportunity to continue the collaborative spirit, both in my writing, in my consulting, as well as in my full-time job of being at the higher education level. I feel like there are two, two worlds. My first shift of my first world was realizing that language learners can stay in content classes. And okay, so we're not going to pull them out anymore. So we co-teach, how do we make that happen? And that's where you came in. That's what you and Maria and Dell came in because we, I was already in, by the time I was understanding the philosophy that, oh, sheltered instruction, kids can be learning content in the same classes as other kids. You really brought a different perspective of saying, yes, they should. And where are the language teachers? Oh, they're in the classes with those students working with their colleagues. I was like, ah, oh, what a shift. That's why your book is a bestseller because there are no resources out there until you came along. So we have to thank you for that. And you just, and you continue to, to do a lot of work. And you not only write books for, uh, for working with teacher collaboration, but you also written like technology book and language and literacy book. So you've really have contributed to the field in so many ways and continues to do. And I call you like the book factory, forget Amazon. Like, <laughs> Andrew Hoggensfeld somehow produces, you just produce book after book after book. I'm like, I'm struggling to produce a tweet. I don't know how you do, or a blog. And I don't know how you just produce like really quality books. And you always say it's because of collaboration. And so you live yes. the word, you live what you preach. It's so great. Absolutely, absolutely. So I certainly have quite a few edited volumes as well. And edited volumes allow me, usually I co-edit with Maria or Audrey Cohan. These edited volumes allow us to expand our collaboration beyond our co-authorship and invite other authors from around the United States and beyond. We really take great pride in connecting with international authors so that they could tell a story. They could tell their story and enhance our understanding because every context for collaboration, or as you mentioned, sheltered instruction or content-based content instruction, um, content support, ESL, ELD, whatever name we're going to be giving to these practices, they're always unique yeah. to the context where they have emerged. So we need to recognize that there's not one size fits all, not one way of co-teaching, one way of collaborating, or one way of creating a collaborative, integrated model of instruction. And that's basically our model, that the most important aspect of this work is to develop ownership, to recognize the local context, to recognize anything right. from federal to state or local guidelines, right. and, um, and, and build on the capacity that you have in your own context. Right. Right. It, it, it's like uh, teacher collaboration is like water. It fits the shape of the container that holds it. It takes on whatever uh, conditions it's placed around or the circumstances. And so, and you make it so applicable to that. You say there's multiple forms of co-planning. There are different things we could do. There's multiple forms of co-teaching uh, and you just make it really accessible. But you say what's important, this, the form does not uh, matter. What's important is the spirit of coming together to support kids everyone has their own expertise and we have to bring our expertise to that. And that's what you're really emphasizing. 
Thank you for recognizing that. Maria and I always say, both in our conference presentations and in our books, that our work is not prescriptive. We're not creating a set, rigid framework into which everybody has to fit, because that just would not work, since collaboration is a very fluid, very dynamic process, as you described it so eloquently, comparing it to water. And um, I'm totally going to steal that metaphor from you because I love it. Anytime you know I'm, I speak through metaphors. <laughs> what can you tell us how you started on this on this process of like moving from standalone um, language language instruction to to, to co-teaching? So going back now, I'm gonna give away the date. We're going back. 1996. So this was a long time ago. The date is important because there were no co-teaching books. Collaboration was barely mentioned for the sake of English learners. If right. anything, right. special education inclusion was taking off. So my principal, who I already credited to before, this idea to, Carol said, why don't we try what special education is doing? Yes. We don't. Yes. We don't have to remove the kids from the classroom. The kids don't have to leave to learn. We don't have to put a label on the children and identify them by their language proficiency levels as, oh, those kids will need something dramatically different and they can't stay with the so-called regular. Now watch me quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> so quote unquote, the regular kids or the regular education or mainstream curriculum. So I think these were really insightful observations by Carol, and that's how it all started. She was very insightful also by recognizing that one period a day would not really make much of a dent. So she actually gave us a block period, two periods every day. That was our literacy block. It was very focused. It was very doable. I only had one single co-teacher because it was a pilot program. Nobody has done that in that building or she has not known anybody who has done co-teaching for the sake mm -hmm. of English learners in that time frame within the New York City system. So we had to try it out. She also gave us an extra planning period on Fridays and she was very smart because she matched up the planning period with our lunchtime. Oh, so, so my co-teachers, Sandy and I, actually, we were not friends. We were colleagues, we were very collegial, but every Friday we ate lunch together. That way we had two periods once a week to plan. We created a routine or a structure so that we don't have to think about what the two period block is going to look like every day. We always started with a mini lesson. Then we had two groups. She took the more advanced group and it was a fluid uh, label, the more advanced group to introduce a writing lesson to them. I took the kids who needed some front loading, pre-teaching, a little bit of an oral practice to the back of the classroom behind a naturally created barrier through a bookcase. And I did an oracy focused lesson reading, speaking, discussing, talking, preparing them for the writing lesson. And then the two groups swapped. So I got the kids after about 20 minutes who already had their writing lesson for a follow-up, for an extension, for an enrichment opportunity, still focusing on oracy and reading. So they did not miss out on that um, focus. 
And then the kids that I worked with came to the front of the room and did the writing lesson with her on a different level. I also love this setup because it still allowed us to retain our autonomy. Yes. I trusted her completely. She developed two writing lessons, or it's actually the same writing lesson on two levels. And I developed two mini lessons in the back of the room, focusing on um, read aloud, a, a discussion task, some sort of shared reading activity, or um, a show and tell related to what we were learning about. This was the first part of the block. The second part of our block was a station rotation setup. We had five stations and every day the children shifted to a new station. So our Friday common planning period totally worked out because we were able to design the five centers. We did a lot of divide and conquer, honestly. And because she was a more seasoned teacher, I was a, a relatively a new teacher in that building and a, a much, much younger teacher at that time. So she took on designing three learning centers and I took on designing two. And that was fair. Again, it was not equal, but it was equitable. And that's how I started learning about how collaboration and co-teaching could also become an amazing vehicle for mentoring, yes. for new teacher induction, yes. for learning at each other's right. um, elbows, for making sure that when we collaborate, um, we allow insights into each other's thinking. And I learned so much from Sandy and so much from this opportunity that I was her co-teacher. We were not side-by-side co-teaching more than for about 15 minutes at the beginning of each block. The rest of the time, we were dividing the kids into different grouping configurations. Right. Right. And that's how my co-teaching journey began. And that's how my understanding of various co-teaching models um, also started emerging. Right. I, so thank you for asking me this question and allowing me to tell this story because I rarely have an opportunity to really uh, reflect on, so how did it all begin? And how did it begin? And what did I first do? And I still cherish that year-long experience. Well, you know what, everything really happens for a reason because if you didn't have that visionary principal who gave you that, that opportunity to work together and then if she didn't give you that time to co-plan, which is so essential, that extended time to co-plan, you would just been, have been an aide going into the class to support instruction. I, yes. And I never felt that way. And it was a combination yeah. of, when I reflect on it, of course, I have had chances to reflect on it. I think it was a combination of both structurally, we set up the block period in a way that I was not a highly paid aide, just standing on the side right. or circulating the room. Right. So that was one thing. And the second thing was because of Sandy, because of my co-teacher recognizing right. my expertise. Right. I might have been much younger and less experienced than she was, but she knew that I'm bringing a new angle to the classroom, that I have my TESOL background. I have a master's degree. At that time, I already had a master's degree in TESOL. So she knew that I know my stuff <laughs> and I can contribute to her lesson. I wanted to write, I wrote down, um, my, my go-to quote is, co-teaching is not where you stand in the room, it's the service you provide wherever you are in the room. And that's what you and your co-teachers did. It was not just standing for the whole block, 90 minutes in front of the class. You separated, you worked together. It was, you said it wasn't equal, but it was really equitable, 
right? It was everyone doing their own thing, but agreeing upon it before separating. In your co-planning time, you thought, okay, uh, your co-teacher said, okay, Andrea, here's, you can do a mini lesson on this that's connected to my lesson on this, but together we're gonna support our kids in, uh, on the same content, just in different ways, and we'll just switch them back and forth because uh, they'll need both of those lessons that you're providing and your co-teacher's providing. And it's not just the front of the class. That's what I really wanna emphasize to teachers because teachers always say, well, you're not standing next to your teacher the whole time. I'm like, that's just, that, that's not the definition of, that's not the only color of co-teaching. Absolutely. Uh, another configuration that I have actually learned by coaching teachers. So this line, I'm glad that you like that line. I can give you another line that I learned from co-teachers who said the front of the room is wherever the teacher who is speaking is. So it is recognizing that you could teach from the back of the classroom. Yes. You could lead learning from the back of the classroom. We don't both have to stand at the blackboard or whiteboard or smartboard or whatever board we have now. Instead, we need to recognize that you have two adults, sometimes three adults. There are three-way co-teaching going on in a lot of contexts with special educators or with teaching assistants who I recognize as co-teachers. And I think it's very, very important that we recognize them as co-teachers rather than as assistants in that setting. And um, occupying the physical space is a critical component of creating an equitable learning environment. I actually have a doctoral student now. Her name is Kelly Cordero. She's finishing up her dissertation on uh, positioning. She's using positioning theory. And it's so exciting to see what's going to come out of her research as she's analyzing the physical space and negotiating and mitigating the physical space that co-teachers occupy and what messages we're sending by that. Just by virtue of where are we in the classroom, we're sending a really, really clear message to our students. For example, if I'm the ESL, EAL teacher, and I always go to the back of the room, right. if I always go to the side of the room, right. if I sit down by the kidney table the moment that I walk into the classroom, I'm sending the message to the rest of the class or the whole class, that's where I belong. I'm marginalizing myself and obviously also marginalizing the students, sending the class the message that these kids do not belong front and center. They belong in the back of the room, they right. belong in the side of the room, right. or they have a special designated table where they immediately have to pack up and move when I show up at the door. So this is fascinating. There's just so many different angles of this practice. So thank you so much for highlighting this this dimension of co-teaching because yeah. we don't want co-teaching to be oh ESL, esl in another room in the same room because <laughs> you said oh i don't want to go in the class and know those kids pack up and sit in my corner we we because we are we're teachers of academic language we're teachers of language and so all kids need language and so it just depends on the figuration it's, i always tell teachers that uh it's the the learning intention that shapes the co-teaching model that we need that determines the co-teaching model. And so if you are saying, oh, you know what, these four kids who are not language learners need a lot of help on writing transitions. Well, okay, that's great. Well, well that's my expertise. So why don't I work with them on that as you teach the science content with that? And then we'll go back to support each other. Or I'll say, hey, 
this scientist, they need, they have a specific language they use. They use the past tense or they use a, a passive voice. Here's what the passive voice looks like in your writing. And this is how it should look. And then you should be in the front instead of sh showing kids or being in stations rotations and kids coming to you to do that. Yeah. Could we talk about um, the emotional side of code uh, teacher collaboration? Cause that could be really difficult. It is. And in my work, I recognize that um, breaks research on relational trust is absolutely critical. Yes. So I'm not sure if you're going to hyperlink some resources to this podcast, yes. because that would be a really great way to help your listeners uh, connect with some additional current research that's also outside of my um, my realm. But what I really appreciated about re the research on relational trust is identifying four important components. One is respect. If we don't respect each other, it's going to be really, really difficult to build a strong relationship. The second is personal regard, which is being open to others, being willing to extend myself. And as you mentioned earlier at the introduction, that I take great pride in doing that in the professional field. The next is the personal integrity that I, I keep my word. I make a commitment. I'm not going to change the lesson plan on you. It's if we agree to something that's going to hold up, right? Very, very important. And finally, um, I, I think they call it a, a competence in our core responsibilities that we are going to be producing the desired outcomes that that we are both competent and we're both recognized as experts in our field. So this body of research is huge. And I was immediately able to make the connection to co-teaching and recognizing, well, this is at the core of it. If I trust you, if we build a right. strong relationship, right. a strong professional relationship, right. we don't have to be best friends. That's an added bonus. I know co-teachers who are truly professional and personal friends for life but that's not a requirement especially if there is a relatively big turnover and all kinds of other variables um, a shortage of um, qualified teachers so the eal teacher might be spread pretty thin and would have to be collaborating with multiple teachers but at the core of successful partnerships that just seems to be this idea of relational trust yeah what do you think yeah, it's so important because we, if we don't, because when I, when I first started teaching, quote unquote, I would go in and observe things that I can critique the teacher on. And then during co-planning, I would go evaluate those teachers on, oh my goodness, if I could go back and, and work with my, my first time co-teachers, oh, it's similar to going back and to our first year of teaching and saying to the kids we first taught and like, please come back. Let me <laughs> write the wrongs that I did. It's the same way. It's like, we we're not there to evaluate because it's, it's really hard for them to feel that it, because teaching is really a, a, a used to be a silo experience. Teachers are not used to having another teacher come in. They would feel like it's an evaluation, but we need to move towards like, Oh, let's co-create together. What can we do together? And it's all about, uh, respectful, uh, respectful engagement first, respectful interactions that say, hey, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to evaluate you. 
we're here to, you really have a lot of skills and your content knowledge that I don't have. And there are things that I could do to, uh, to contribute to your lesson as well. I've been really cautious about saying the word help or support or improve because those that that kind of language can really trigger teachers now it's to say let's what can we do to contribute to the learning with kids absolutely can you talk about the instructional collaborate instructional instruction collaboration cycle sure so that is not an original idea in my work we certainly stand on the shoulder of giants such as experts and researchers and practitioners in the field of special education. I think it was Marilyn Friend and mm, yes. Wendy Morawski from the field of the inclusion uh, literature and special education who first recognized that there is a cyclical nature to this work, which means that we have to co-plan before we co-teach, but we also need to co-assess and look at our students work together and reflect on how well the students have been doing with our instruction, how well have we been doing as co-instructors, and the whole cycle starts all over again. It doesn't necessarily start with co-planning, you could start with the co-assessment because you have to look at student data before you plan. So it is a continuous cycle. The point that we often like to make, and we say Maria and many others who are in this field, is that there is no co-teaching without co-planning, co-assessment and reflection. Exactly, yeah. Yes. So. And you, so you talked about the importance of uh, co-planning. Why is that so essential? If there is no co-planning, let's say, um, let's do a little virtual trip and I'll come into your classroom and I'll co-teach with you tomorrow, Tan, what's gonna happen? I walk into the classroom and I'm going to say to you, hi, what are you doing today? <laughs> because I have no idea what you're doing today. Right. And then you, first of all, won't have any time to explain to me what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to quickly excuse myself and say to you, oh, don't worry. I'll just circulate the room or I'll, I'll sit with those kids. And we immediately create an inequitable learning environment right. and an, a learning environment which is less than impactful. Because I could be a helper and I could be maybe a pretty, um, I'm an extra pair of hands, an extra set of eyes. So you might really, really appreciate my presence, but the instructional intensity that I'm gonna bring to your classroom is going to be limited. Right. Since we did not have a chance to look at objectives, right. we did not have a chance to look at what standards we're going to be addressing, let alone materials to use. I did not bring anything. As you noticed, I just walked into your classroom empty-handed, or maybe I had my cart, maybe I had my, my big tote bag full of worksheets, but that's really not going to help instruction <laughs> either because what I have prepared or planned has nothing to do with what you were going to be doing as the core content teacher. Right. So I think co-planning is it's an absolutely critical part of this process. And we can persuade teachers very, very easily. We need to be able to persuade administrators. Right. Co-planning is not a luxury. It's not an added right. bonus free time right. that we give teachers right. as a reward. Not at all. It is something that is um, a non-negotiable. I think as, as I continue doing this kind of research, some of my language is becoming more and more deliberate 
<laughs> so now Maria and I like to call co-planning as a non-negotiable. Because without co-planning, it's going to end up being a push-in. And you did not hear me say the word push-in a single time. Right. Because we do not use push-in. Do you want to talk and about that? Why should we? I do. You can talk about it a lot too, but you know that push-in is an antiquated term. Yes. Yes, we recognize that even in New York City, up until 2015, that was the officially designated name for this kind of co-teaching. They just called it push-in. Right. We even had a program model called pushing pull aside so we were really refined about our thinking you're pushing in when you co-teach but you pull aside when you have nothing to do with what the rest of the class is doing and we rationalize these choices and maria and i are arguing we argue that you cannot do that you cannot come up with a rationale why push in or pull aside would be a viable program option yet at the same time, I keep hearing both in international circles as well as in the United States that, so what happens when a, an ELD or ESL, EAL teacher is more of a consultant rather, or a coach rather than a co-teacher? In other words, that teacher cannot stay there regularly every Monday morning for a full block or a full period. So how are we going to describe that in-class support. So I like the term in-class support. Then yes. let's call it in-class support right. or, or coaching support or language right. um, support, if that's what it is. But pushing to me is a very aggressive and inappropriate right. term. It's territorial. And I'd like to just drop it. Yes, yes, um, from our field. And I think most states, more, most districts, most schools, stop using that term. Yes. Co-teaching definitely implies that there is some co-ing going on, right. while in-class support might not imply that at all. Right. And while I'm not promoting in-class support to be the sole type of service delivery for English learners in the core content classes, I have certainly seen a number of cases where that was a necessary option. Exactly. For example, if there's one single child in the classroom, or if there is a new arrival, a brand new arrival, or if somebody who has experienced trauma in a refugee situation, and that child really needed the in-class support. So it makes sense to be mindful, intentional, and purposeful about our uh, labels, about our program design. And as you could see, uh, Maria and I are not against other alternatives. We certainly are not the co-teaching ladies who say co-teaching or nothing else. <laughs> so we certainly understand that ownership, local context, many, many variables are going to be critical when administrators and teachers co-construct or revise their programs. We, I, when I, for me, when I say, when I use the word in-class support, it's to mean when I haven't had a chance to plan with you with my co-teacher. So then I will provide in-class support because I haven't had a chance to plan. But when I co-teach, that implies that I've already had time to co-plan. So therefore I am a direct, I have uh, an equal designer. I'm an equal designer of instruction and I'm not an aide. And so in addition with push-in, when I, when I first heard the idea of push-in, it was like, if someone's pushing in, that means someone's pushing against you. And, and also when you are, and if, 
the person pushing against you, that's either the students, meaning they don't want to leave because they should be in the class because that's the, the richest context for them to learn. And the second person that's resisting uh, is the, the content teacher or the homeroom teacher or, or the, the co-teacher. It's instead of uh, pushing against, as we push in, we should be welcomed in. And that's the spirit of, of co-teaching. I agree with you. It is just an important moment for us to reflect on how do we design these programs? In what way can we make sure that some of the previous program models that have been out there are carefully revised, revisited, and, and we also rely on research. I'd like right. to point out to you, and maybe we could also hyperlink this, that there is a research article, and I'm going to look up the exact title. So the article that I'm referencing in my work quite a bit is called Pushing Back Against Push In. The subtitle is ESOL Teacher Resistance and the Complexities of Co-Teaching. So the push-in model did not serve us well. It did not age well. It did not um, respond to teacher needs or student needs. And it also gave co-teaching a pretty bad reputation initially. Right. So we needed to carefully redefine what is co-teaching, what are the service delivery options and models that we have, and how to reflect on their effectiveness. And recognize that it's a complex process. What is the what is the research that you were looking for for BRICS before? You said respect, personal engagement. Who is that person again? So I hyperlink it. Yes, that's B-R-Y-K. And they have an article with a co-author and they have an ASCD ed leadership article okay. that is open access. So I think that would be a really good link okay. there. Okay. And the construct is relational trust. Oh, so they really went beyond trust. There are a lot of people have written and researched about trust, but relational trust, especially in the context of education. They also, uh, other people have done another, uh, other really important research on trusting your administrators. And there is a great AFT, the American Federation of Teachers publication on uh, whether we have a trust gap we like to talk about achievement gap, mm -hmm. opportunity gap, all kinds of gaps. But in this particular article, they were unpacking the uh, idea, what if there is a trust gap? Right. Just brilliant. So yeah, I can certainly send you these links and you could hyperlink them yes, thank you. Uh, to your blog. I mean, sorry, to your podcast. When we talk, when you were just talking about administrators, what is what are some things that administrators can do to support uh, teacher collaboration? Well, administration has an absolutely critical role in this. The evidence for that comes from many, many school visits and site-based research that Maria and I have done because without administrative support, it could be a grassroots effort and the thriving grassroots effort in a single classroom. I've seen that before, absolutely brilliant, vibrant co-teaching team doing phenomenal work, showing outstanding results when we look at student data. The rest of the building, the rest of the school is floundering. And it's almost just a, a pet 
a peeve, a, a hobby for that team to do this, and they're allowed to do it. I've also seen constructs where it's a state mandate. So it's a top down. Everybody has to do co-teaching. There is no choice about it. We had that in New York State starting in 2015. And if administrators do not buy in, even though we're not selling anything, so buy-in is not a good word, but if the administrators are not embracing policy and they're not putting the necessary uh, structure and support in place, then the teachers have to interpret this and they're floundering too. They don't understand what are we supposed to be doing if the administrator doesn't understand what they're supposed to be doing, or they are not on board with the initiative that comes down from the state. So administrative leadership, instructional leadership, creating the conditions, creating the not just the culture and the atmosphere for collaboration, but many of those logistical aspects of collaboration, time, teacher assignment, student assignment, resources, if you think of it, all of those, the master schedule, all of those elements are in the administrator's hands. I, I would agree with that completely. I think the teacher collaboration can, can start and sprout in individual classes and te small teams, but I think it's sustained and expanded by the work of school leadership. Without them, it, it, it can't, it can't uh, be a sustainable movement because then they won't create a time schedule. Like I think the biggest thing is there, one, the principals have to create a culture where teachers collaborate. Like they really support that and they encourage that. And they say, this is the culture that we want. And I think the second thing is for uh, schools, schools to have policy or district levels, uh, district leaders to help create policies to help uh, teacher collaboration. And the last and most important thing is that principals create a timetable that actually facilitates and support and stimulates uh, teacher collaboration instead of, oh, we have to creatively carve time out of our schedule to find co-teaching and co-planning time. Exactly, exactly. So if it's put, if the onus is on the teachers, that's when resentment begins. Because as I mentioned earlier, when we had the conversation before, our um, recording, uh, Brene Brown really captured it so accurately when she talks about one of the greatest challenges we face in this day and age as scarcity, mm, yes. scarcity of time, that we don't have enough time. We question ourselves, are we doing enough for these students? We're very hard on ourselves. Um, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough time. We don't have maybe enough uh, training. There's always something that we could look at that we don't have enough of. And when teachers are asked to figure it out all, on, all by themselves, the number one complaint that I often get, we don't have enough time. Yes. So then how could we still make it happen? Well, administrative leadership is absolutely critical, but when we can't wait around for that, are we just gonna give up on collaboration? Are we gonna give up on our kids? So again, evoking Brene Brown, one of the answers is what you started with, which is this idea of wholeheartedness. When we put our heart and soul into it, we make it work. We figure out ways that we share resources online. We open up shared Google folders. We do what we learned in kindergarten, which is sharing is caring. 
we utilize cross-cutting strategies. Right. So if I use a particular grouping configuration in one classroom and it works well, as an EAL teacher, ESL, ELD teacher, I can take that strategy and apply the same strategy in the next classroom. So I don't have to reinvent the wheel every single day and start from scratch. So sometimes we simply have to work smarter rather than harder yes. in this context. Yes, that's the thing I was saying. When people ask me, we don't have enough time, what do we do? We, and I say, take some of your co-teaching time and devote it back into co-planning time because the work that you do in co-planning, let's say at the beginning of a unit where you look at the assessment or creating a rubric or creating the, uh, a model for the final assess or the final product that students are going to produce, that 35, 45 minutes of co-planning will really uh, clarify what students have to learn, the content they have to learn, the language they have to produce, so that you can now, even though you're not in the class co-teaching at that time, the planning, the, the thing that they're teaching directly goes back to the co-planning. For example, like I remember teaching with a design teacher and I wasn't able to go to the teacher's classes, all of the classes, but we sat at the beginning of the unit and we said, okay, let's break down all the, the, the four criterions that kids have to learn. Let's create a template for kids to structure that. And so then when I, we created that in about an hour and then he, he used it for the rest of the nine weeks. And though I wasn't able to go to his class often as I wanted to, uh, or the, 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 the template we created was used every day with all kids. And that's the power of, of when we don't have enough time, we focus on co-planning because that really amplifies our time and, and, and multiply what we can do. Absolutely. So, uh, Maria have a very, very strong, not just anecdotal evidence, even though it was not our research, but data from a particular school where co-planning was very strong, well-structured and non-negotiable. Teachers were actually asked to give up their individual planning time, which is unheard of in some contexts, but in this particular school, there was no individual planning time. All planning time on the schedule was dedicated to literacy meetings, math meetings, co-teaching meetings. So every single co every single prep time was collaborative. And this particular school went from being ranked in the 400s in that particular state to being ranked among the top 25. Oh, wow. It is, and it is so powerful because the principal asked Maria and me to come in and support them after they have already achieved that huge jump. So we were really puzzled and excited to be there, but we're asking like, what do you need us for? Look at your data, look at your results. And by the way, how did you achieve this result, these results if you're asking us to come and support your co-teaching? Well, the story goes that their co-planning was so well-designed and well-structured but their actual co-delivery of instruction was not as seamless as it could be. Ah, okay. Teachers were talking over each other. It was not very polished yet. So he wanted us to support the co-delivery and you could, you could get the results. It was a huge eye-opening finding for us. You could get amazing results without the co-teaching being perfect and polished and right. rehearsed. Right. 
And um, so affirming what you said, co-planning is a non-negotiable, it's critical, right. and it's time well spent. Invest your time into co-planning. Right. Right. I agree. Because right. I, I say co-teaching, co-planning is co-teaching. It's just without kids. Like the work that we do in co-planning directly impacts students' instruction and students' experience. So, yeah. Can you talk about, I have two more questions, but now that, you, now that you're doing this for so many years, where do you think teacher collaboration is going? It's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> I think we can agree yes. that it has been a huge transformation in our field. Yes. I don't think we could ever go back to a pull-out system. No. But that's our main a mode of delivery. Collaboration is also moving into the online context. Teachers more and more find ways to collaborate using all sorts of cloud-based um, file sharing systems, co-planning virtually, um, trying to work in the same document, but maybe physically not being in the document at the same time or not being physically present at the same time whether it's due to any kind of limitation or a number of responsibilities, or in our current situation, some of, some of our schools or many of our schools are going into a, a virtual learning experience until the coronavirus is hopefully over very soon. Right. So online collaboration is more vibrant than ever before. And where else are we going? I think we have to also look at more and more three-way collaborations um, why aren't our English learners represented in gifted programs? Mm. Why are they excluded almost automatically because of the so-called quote-unquote language barrier? Right. That there is a huge over-representation of English learners in special education and under-representation of this population in gifted programs. So I'm hoping that this initiative, this approach is also going to be moving more and more into a collaborative integrated model of instruction working together with our um, special educators and gifted educators and i think as we as this model is as teaching becomes more collaborative I, the gift of it is that besides helping students we get to model for kids what it looks like for adults to work together because they'll need that when they or in the workforce, or when they own their own businesses, or when they are politicians, or when they are uh, community activists. Like we need to model when we stand together with our colleagues. We're modeling negotiating. We're, mo we're modeling respectful engagement. We're modeling playful interactions that uh, is for a purpose. Absolutely, that is just so important that the kids can witness how we work out our differences or how we check in with each other. So even though you mentioned the importance of co-planning um, a few times, I often like to point out to teachers that co-teaching can never be scripted. Even if you have a lot of co-planning time and you're right. very thorough and right. very detailed, we make hundreds of decisions each day as educators. So I think some research that I read said that the typical teacher makes 300 decisions a day. I don't know how they cal calculated that or how they counted that, but that's a very impressive number. So imagine that when we're co-teachers, we can check in with each other 300 times. There are those teachable moments. There are those sudden shifts to the lesson that we have to make um, in the moment. So 
co-teaching has to be a fluid dynamic process that co-planning supports but what we said earlier respect for each other and trust in each other will complete the cycle complete the circle and uh, lead to a successful co-teaching i remember when we first met uh, when you were at in bangkok at a conference at the elsa conference and you gave us homework and you, in talking about respect you said this is your homework teachers every day you leave the classroom you must compliment your co-teacher on something and then i added to that and say if complimenting is hard then say something that you appreciate that they did or appreciate that they uh, allowed you to do and so uh, do you want to speak about because that connects back to the relationship part do you want to talk about that Oh yes, I give. I still give that homework <laughs> every time I speak to every group, and I'm really glad that it stayed with you of because um, there's no teacher that I've ever met who said he or she gets too many compliments. Yeah. I can't. I can't get one more. No, thank you. I really can't deal with one more compliment. Leave me alone. No, I think our field in general is to some degree underappreciated, yes. and we are facing increasingly. Um, more and more challenging situations. For example, again, adjusting to virtual schooling yes. and changing up everything the way we've known about teaching. Now we have to adapt to an online learning environment, often for very young children as well. So there are numerous challenges that we have to be adaptable to address. So in this context, the one thing that we have is each other. Yes. The strongest resource that we have is our collective efficacy, our shared ownership of the work. But we have to acknowledge that if we want to build and foster collaborative partnerships, we truly have to acknowledge each other every day. Yeah, and a simple compliment. I remember Michael Bonner said, he, uh, you cannot invest, you cannot withdraw from a relationship you haven't invested in. And I always tell teachers that every interaction is either withdrawal or a deposit. And so we have to deposit more than we withdraw. And that, that, that goes back to like the Gottman Institute where they say for every criticism or negative experience we have, we have to make sure that we have five positive interactions so that it, it so that it, the, the one negative interaction weighs more, it's heavier than the positive interactions that we have. And we just have to make sure that we are having positive interactions and complimenting a teacher every day or showing appreciation at the end of the day, uh, end of the period is exactly what we have to do. Absolutely. Uh, let me end this session with asking you one formal, one last question and then we'll go into the closing part. Uh, what if, if, there is, if there's a teacher listening and saying, I wanna do this, I wanna co-teach, I wanna co-plan, but I don't have the structure for it. What is the one recommendation that you, that you would provide for them? Well, we mentioned earlier that without leadership support or structural support, co-teaching could still happen as a grassroots effort. Yes. And I would encourage that teacher that just because the structure is not there yet, we're now evoking Carol Dweck, that we're not saying that it's not there. Yes. Maybe it's not there yet. Yes. It doesn't mean that it should stop us right. from trying a new initiative. So starting small, starting with one co-teaching partner, one invited co-teaching partner, one grade level, one classroom, and shifting to this practice just one day at a time, our small victories, our small successes 
are really important, but you have to try it to right. really experience the impact of it. Right. It, it, it does take, it does start in a small classroom and that can happen. Let's, let's end with this. You, I always end with something called traffic light teaching. And uh, so traffic light has red, yellow, and green, and they mean different things. So the red is, what is something that you ask teachers to stop doing? And then a yellow is, what would you have, what would you ask teachers to question about their practice or slow down? And the green is, what do you recommend for teachers to do as much as possible? Like, what would you, we can start anywhere, red, green, yellow. Okay, so let's start with the green. Let's have a very positive, um, sort of active, dynamic response to it. So you have to keep going with this practice. Yes. It's not going to give you immediate results. If you're expecting this to be the silver bullet or the magic bullet, it is not. Because there's no silver bullet in our education. It is one solid construct that you have to invest into. You have to keep going with it for a long time, consistently and patiently to get results. The slow down part, the yellow part would be take the time to appreciate the work, to appreciate each other yes. and also to reflect. So we haven't talked too much about that, but the collaborative instructional cycle does have the co-planning, co-teaching, co-assessment and co-reflection component and reflecting on what works and what can we do differently next time is really important. Maria and I borrowed a simple formula and then we turned it into a, a very complex reflection tool. But the simple formula is two plus two. Reflecting on two things that went well and two things that we, not you, not finger pointing, <laughs> but two things that we can do differently next time. Right. And then what should we stop doing? Hmm, that's really, really tricky. I'm very rarely prescriptive and um, harsh in that sense. Yes. But so what should we stop doing? I think we should stop being so hard on ourselves and give up easily and try to make statements that could hurt the practice by simply dismissing that while well, co-teaching does not work because, but maybe co-teaching the way we have been practicing is not working, but let's reflect going back to the yellow part. Let's reflect what is not working. What aspect of co-teaching might not be working for us? and then go back to the green light, in what direction can we go where we have already documented success and build on those successes? Yeah, I, I, when you said that, it makes me think of like, when I tell teachers, I say, we are not, we're not trying to get to a goal. We're just trying to plant seeds and we allow the seasons to have the seeds pop up as they will and when they will and which one they will. Our job is to simply plant seeds, and that's where the relationship is. We're just planting seeds uh, with our colleagues, with our co-teachers, with the administration, and, and then we let time pass, and then it'll sprout the way it should. And that's like taking a gentle approach to it. Yeah, so thank you for saying that. Sure, well, thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was so great. You're such. We're we are looking forward to more books from you because I know that there are many, many more books that you will produce. It, it seems like once every six months, Andrea. I love it. Well, it's because of collaboration, of course. I couldn't do it alone. Thank you for showing us how. 
when the field we have always talked about now have be in the class with the kids now you're really showing us how so we you and Anne, you and Maria are two of the brightest lights that shine a path for us and so uh, we wholeheartedly uh, are so grateful for the work that you do and know that you are directly in our classes even though you will never meet my kids my prayer when I do when I write a blog or when I facilitate professional learning or when I do a podcast, I always say first, may this serve kids I will never meet. And that's what you and Marie are doing. You're serving kids that you will never meet. And you are serving school districts and teachers that you will never meet through the work that you do. But you know that your work is having an impact. So thank you. Well, thank you so much and all the best with your work. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Wasn't Andrea's personal story about her experience co-teaching such a treat? The arrangement was equitable because Andrea was treated as a skilled educator who had the role of designing instruction for all students. She was free to make instructional decisions for all classes. If you are in a co-teaching arrangement, you do not have to be teaching 50% of the time or doing 50% of the work. You have to, however, be given the opportunities to teach, plan, assess, interact with all students. Her story also highlighted how teacher collaboration is a powerful and highly effective job embedded learning opportunity because it occurs continuously throughout the year and it is highly relevant to our work. Like Dr. John Hattie pointed out with collective teacher efficacy, teacher collaboration provides us with a chance to talk about student achievement, look at student work, look at standards, and design instruction together. His process can be used with teacher collaboration because we can co-reflect on the effectiveness of our instructional decisions. The last thing I wanna highlight about Sandy and Andrea's partnership was the creative way they combine lunch and co-planning time to make it even more productive. This emphasizes the need to establish a consistent co-planning schedule as central to our teacher partnership. Finally, teacher collaboration is where we design equitable learning experience for students. We get to address their needs proactively instead of reactively. I've written a companion article to this podcast to summarize each part of the collaborative instructional cycle. When I first started co-teaching, I only thought about co-teaching and co-planning not co-reflecting or co-assessing. Because of the collaborative instructional cycle, my teaching is now more dynamic and robust. The link is in the show notes. In the next episode, 
we'll have Andrea's co-author, Dr. Maria G. Dove, join us to continue the conversation about teacher collaboration. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Oh,